0: This is Pen Dust Radio. Welcome, all you literati. You lovers of words and tales. You who need a break in your hurried, harried lives. We have a salve for your soul with stories imaginative and original. Short stories, riveting fiction, and wildly creative nonfiction. Pen Dust Radio. Definitely not the same old story. Please visit us at pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. We publish literary fiction and creative nonfiction. Learn more at RivercliffBooks.com.
1: her father gives her a creepy antique photograph depicting three relatives propped up in their coffins, Sarah K. Lenz sets out to discover their story and figure out why post-mortem photography haunts her. Lightning Flowers tells the story of her three great-uncles who, in 1914, were struck and killed by the same bolt of lightning. It is a thoughtful meditation on what it means to remember the dead. And confront one's own mortality. You can view the haunting photo of Sarah's great uncles at rivercliffbookscom lightning. While this is a true story, some names and identifying details have been changed to protect the privacy of the people involved. Sarah K. Lenz's nonfiction has appeared in numerous literary journals. She's the founder of the writer's studio, Corpus Christi a community-based organization devoted to creative writing education. She teaches writing at Del Mar College in Corpus Christi, Texas, where she lives with her husband, son, and three cantankerous cats. Lightning Flowers Written by Sarah K. Lenz Read by Julie Niblett A trio of open caskets are propped on wooden straight-back chairs, The open lids of each white coffin reveal a square peephole framing the face and torso of three dead bodies. On top of the caskets, shiny placards read an ornate scroll, At rest. Like all corpses laid out for funeral rites, the three boys exude a certain peacefulness due to the careful closing of their eyes and mouth, what morticians call setting the features. The dead brothers wear matching dark suits and black bow ties. Their dark hair is slicked back from their foreheads. Carnations rest on their chests, near clasped hands. Edgar Allan Poe in triplicate, I think. But I can't tell if it's the hair, the dark suits, or the morbid situation that brings this to mind. In the background, a ladder-shaped shadow that the wooden chairs make and the parlor's white curtains take on the blur of an apparition. In the foreground of the photo, the bottoms of the caskets are cropped out. The coffins slant toward the viewer at a precarious angle, as if at the slightest stirring— Each casket could slip, topple to the ground, and spill its contents. My father gave me the photograph. I was visiting him in central Nebraska and hadn't seen him in over a year. He looked older than I remembered, the sagging skin around his eyes more pronounced, the hair around his temples whiter. Almost a decade after his divorce from my mother, he had started to rid his house of clutter and memorabilia, things he thinks he won't need for the rest of his life as he plans to move into public housing for senior citizens. I've got something for you, he said. He took me to the back bedroom and dug through the closet. Here, you're the family historian. You should have this. He handed me the framed photograph lacquered with dust. Flecks of molded plaster decorating the frame crumbled where I touched it. I'd seen this photo and heard the story before. They were struck by lightning. But looking at it was still chilling. I'm not sure why this photograph haunts me. Though they are my great-uncles, I can't call them my dearly departed. They died nearly a hundred years ago, and anyone who would have known them is dead now, too. I am certain this is the only extant photograph of these relatives. They have ceased to live on in any memory. What remains is a 10 by 12 silver gelatin print. After my dad gave me the picture, I put it face down on the back seat of my car, the next day I drove to Lincoln to visit my cousin, Aaron. From there I would drive home to Ohio. When I arrived at Aaron's ranch style suburban house, she was just as I remembered, petite, blonde, and wearing too much blue eyeshadow. I hadn't seen her in two years, not since my sister's wedding, but growing up we had been closest sisters. Aaron's mom, my Aunt Dottie, died of breast cancer when Aaron was six and I was seven. Our aunts made sure Dottie's legacy lived on by mothering Aaron as their own and telling her as many stories about Dotty as they could remember. Aaron had given birth to a premature baby who died five years ago. Though she is only nine months younger than me, Aaron's life has been transformed by these tragic deaths in ways I cannot imagine. I have gotten this far without a death in the immediate family. But it's only a matter of time. I brought Aaron a bottle of Patron, we sat at the kitchen table drinking shots of tequila chased by Diet Coke. We talked about our aunts. Counting Dottie and my mother, Carolie. there are six aunts, and three have been ravaged in varying degrees by breast cancer. My mom, though now in remission, has had breast cancer twice. The second time it returned even after her double mastectomy. Another aunt, Beth, is dying of stage 4 breast cancer. It has metastasized to her bones. I was supposed to get a mammogram this year, Erin told me, because she had turned 30, and she and I are both extremely high risk. My mom was our age when she was diagnosed. What was it that gave them all cancer? She asked. I don't know, I said. I told Erin how I got a mammogram last year because I found a lump, but it was benign. After my breasts had been x-rayed, the doctor showed me the images. The veins and masses, circles of cysts, some benign, others maybe not. Smashed into two-dimensional amoeba-like blobs glowing on the screen, my breasts seemed no longer a part of me, but something primordial with blossoming capillary trails in electric blue. More tequila? I asked. Aaron nodded. We raised our glasses, slammed back the liquor, and sucked on wedges of lime, doling the alcohol's fire. Later, because we were talking about death and I was a bit drunk, I told Aaron about my corpse photograph. I want to see it, she said. I ran across her manicured front lawn and got the photo from my car. When I came back, I felt bashful about showing it to her. Though she wanted to see it, the image felt petty or over-sensationalized, like rubbernecking. We can't help looking at the scene of an accident, but why does it rivet us? Maybe it makes us grateful we are still alive. Maybe it shows us what we don't want to imagine. What death, when it finally comes for us maybe like back in the kitchen i put the framed photograph on the table you're right that's creepy aaron said but aiden's photographs don't bother me at all i'll show you she fetched a blue gingham baby book i only know the roughest outline of what she had experienced with aiden he had been born premature and he died how long did he live i asked her five months Then she told me how he was on life support the entire time, but finally the doctors had told her and her husband that Aiden's organs were going to start shutting down. They could either keep him on the breathing tubes or let him go peacefully. I flipped open the album. Many of the photos had been carefully contrived. I noticed Aiden looks like his older brother, who had also been born premature but survived and is now a fifth grader. Preemie Aiden is fragile, inchoate, and wrinkled. His chapped skin is never quite the right color, sometimes jaundiced yellow, sometimes ashen gray. Always a respirator tube connects to his mouth, taped in place like a small, clear vacuum hose. IV needles pierce his skin, and tubes curl from his body in every direction like tentacles. These posed photos speak to the desire of the beholder. On Easter, Aiden is staged with a stuffed plush rabbit and an Easter basket. On another occasion, he wears a camouflaged hat that reads, Daddy's Little Hunter. Erin and her husband had hired a professional photographer to take a family portrait, detailed close-ups of Aiden's chapped feet, shot in artistic black and white. The families of infants in the neonatal intensive care unit are encouraged to take photos. Memorializing infants with only a tenuous grip on life gives the small soul a history and a story. Aaron had painstakingly documented Aiden's existence, proving for a brief moment he had been a member of her family, her beloved son. Photographs are witnesses, affirming we lived and our lives made a difference. This urge to accumulate evidence shouldn't be surprising now that we digitally document and timeline our lives on Facebook, but it goes further than that. We remember the dead because we want to be remembered too. In 2005, a mother who had lost her 6-day-old baby to a rare congenital disorder started the nonprofit Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep. The organization enlists the volunteer services of 11,000 professional photographers to photograph babies like Aiden around the US and in 40 different countries. These pro bono shutterbugs photograph babies in the NICU both before and after they die. The website advertising copy aimed at would-be volunteer photographers reads: Imagine a photo session where each moment is a last moment, where there will be no second takes, where what you're doing becomes a family's most prized possession. Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep calls their services Remembrance Photography, which is considered an integral tool in the parents' grieving process. Photographing children post-mortem is not new. From the 1850s and into the late 1920s, millions of post-mortem photographs were shot, depicting deceased of every demographic. The convergence of more affordable and accessible daguerreotypes, and later silver emulsion prints, and reliable embalming techniques developed during the American Civil War, coupled with a high mortality rate, led to the popularity of post-mortem images. Post-mortems then went out of fashion during the Great Depression, as people began to consider them morbid and vulgar. The post-mortem images of Aden are beautiful. Only after his death does he look like a healthy baby. Thanks to a skillful mortician's makeup job, Aiden's skin appears smooth and rosy. He looks just like he's sleeping, I told Erin when I saw the first post-mortem photograph of him. She said, I love looking at him without the tubes. When I got back home to Ohio, I contacted an old photography instructor of mine to ask him about the coffin portrait. I thought he might see something in the photograph I had missed. Jim works at a museum, and he recommended I contact a rare manuscripts curator there, a woman named Ellen. When I met Ellen a few days later and told her this, she chuckled in a raspy, cigarette-hardened voice. We sat and chatted in her messy office, the desk between us piled with files, papers, and books. Let me show you what I brought, I said as I handed her the coffin portrait. She scanned it appreciatively. I collected post-mortems, Ellen said. But when my grandson was born, I took all the death pictures down. I didn't want him seeing them. Ellen handed me a book, a limited-edition monograph entitled Sleeping Beauty, Memorial Photography in America. In 1990, Dr. Stanley Burns released this collection of post-mortems. Ellen's assistant walked in, wheeling a cart of acid-free archive boxes. Oh, she said, shuddering, That book gives me nightmares. Ellen showed me to the museum's reading room and introduced me to the head librarian who took down the names of my great-uncles, Johnny, Charlie, and Lumiere Krahulik. When I was in Nebraska, Dad had taken me to see their grave. The only date carved on the white marble tombstone had been the year, 1914. The librarian disappeared into her cubicle to try to find their obituary in a digital archive. I settled in at a reading table with the corpse portrait next to me. Oh, my word, Jim said when he came over to see the photo. The dead faces in the photo are the most disturbing. Those are burn marks, right? I asked of the dark smudges around the corpse's faces. Not just flaws in the photograph? Jim took out his loop. Yep, they're roughed up quite good. I looked through the magnifying lens and saw burn marks splayed across the boy's chins. A deep gash cuts across the lip of the oldest boy. They probably aren't cuts at all, but lightning flowers, or Lichtenberg figures, named after the German physicist who, in 1777, studied the patterns high-voltage static electricity made. When a current of lightning passes through the skin, capillaries rupture and bloom into fern-like burns under the skin. Like tributaries, they mark the flow of the stream, a heart-stopping volt of electricity. How did you say they were killed? Jim asked. From what my dad tells me, they were getting the horses in from the storm when they were struck by lightning. They were all killed instantly, and the barn burnt to the ground. Jim left me to look at the sleeping beauties. As I turned the pages, I noticed each photo had something that caught my eye, and that, like the burned faces of my great-uncles, made me uneasy. In Mother Holds Daughter with Rigor Mortis While Father Mourns, photographed in 1846, It was the awkward, rigidly straight arms of the dead girl. In Child Dead from Dehydration Due to Intestinal Disease, photographed in 1854, it was the child's sunken cheeks contrasted with her bulbous skeletal head. In Charlie, a Boy with His Toys, photographed in 1850, it was the deceased's half-open eyes gazing longingly at the wagon he'll never play with again. French theorist Roland Barthes has a word for details like this punctum like the period under an exclamation point a sharp needle prick the hole an arrow makes or the spot where lightning strikes punctum is a detail that attracts or distresses the viewer the punctum can arouse sympathy or a flash of insight bart explains in camera lucida however lightning like it may be the punctum has a power of expansion this power is often metonymic for bart Photographs could transcend themselves, becoming no longer the medium, the stand in representing reality, but reality itself. He asks, is this not the sole proof of its art? Like reference to Madonna and Child, the mothers in these antique post-mortem photos cradle their dead children. But unlike da Vinci or Raphael Madonnas with beatific expressions, these mothers are stoic. In the daguerreotype of Mother Holding Her Dead Child, photographed in 1855, the woman meets the gaze of the camera straight on, jaw set firm, as if her stony countenance could prevent an emotional breakdown. Aaron's pictures with Aiden are different. In the photo that haunts me the most, Aaron holds Aiden in an upright position, sitting on her lap facing her, so his back is turned to the camera. For a minute, It's easy to believe he's a normal infant because the tubes that spider across his face enter his rosebud mouth and snake down his tiny nose aren't in sight. The punctum is Aaron's eyes. They are full of tears. The pain in her red-rimmed eyes seems so private that I gasped the first time I saw it. What? Aaron had asked. In that moment, I had felt like I crossed a boundary, overstepped a line of decency. This is such a... I hadn't known what to say. It feels... Then I managed to tell her. Somehow, this picture snatches your emotions. Don't you feel like this photo violates your privacy? Oh, Aaron had said. That was the day we took Aiden off life support. I loved that picture, because I loved the back of his little head and wanted a picture of it. Aaron is deeply religious, I realize that gives her strength. She is certain Dottie and Aiden are in heaven together, waiting for the rest of the family to join them. I am awed by her nonchalance. She's had several years to process this grief, but even so, I'm struck by her unselfishness. She's given the viewer a gift. Raw emotion. This snapshot is the antithesis of a Kodak moment. It documents not a birthday party or wedding, the sort of event that we normally want to relive in memory, but a point in time no one would ever want to go through once, let alone over again in memory. This photo of Aaron's face contorted in sorrow allows viewers to experience, at a deeply personal level, a horror not their own. Kafka said, We photograph things in order to drive them out of our minds. If he is right, post-mortem photographs are a way of shelving grief, so we don't have to confront it again and again. Having trapped the gruesome face of death, relegated it to a closed photo album, pain fades. The emulsion of chemicals on light-sensitive paper remembers, so we don't have to. The librarian came back to my table with a piece of paper. I'm sorry. There's no digital copy of the newspaper that printed their obituary, she told me. But I did find this. She handed me a printout of the 1910 census record listing the boys and their brother Rudolph, my great grandfather. From this, I pieced together how old they had been when they died. Charlie was 15, Lumiere 13, and Johnny 11. The librarian also gave me an index listing the boys' death notice published on May 28, 1914. Their obituaries are probably only available on microfilm, she explained. Later, I called the Ord Township Library the library of my childhood, and asked how I could access the obituaries from out of state. "'Tell me the dates and names again,' the librarian said over the phone. I did, and she said, "'Wait, are you Carolee's daughter?' "'Yes.' "'How's your mom doing?' I didn't want to answer. I didn't know this woman and was taken aback by her personal question." Ord was such a small town that I realized the librarian may have gone to my mom's cancer benefit dinner to raise money for her medical bills. Did she want to know if my mom was still in remission? It was none of her business, I thought. She's well, I said, and left it at that. Even though my mom's been pronounced cancer-free, we know it could strike again. When I told my mother about the postmortem photography I was researching, she surprised me by saying, Oh! I have photos of Grandpa B. at his funeral. Your uncle took them. She agreed to send them to me. These post mortems of Grandpa would be different than photographs of dead strangers. Harder to look at, I thought. When the envelope arrived in the mail, I waited months before I felt ready to open it. I had attended Grandpa's funeral as a middle schooler. At the visitation before the funeral, my cousins, Aaron and Brian, had dared me to touch the body because we were all a bit terrified of Grandpa's corpse. When I finally worked up the courage to touch it, my dead grandfather's hand had felt like Grandma's brown naugahyde couch, smooth, cool, and synthetic. I bet his bald head feels like a bowling ball, Brian had said with a smirk. I don't think Brian had ever tested his theory. Soon after that, we left the funeral parlor's slumber room to climb trees in the landscaping across the street. We were old enough to know better, but brazen enough not to care trying to do something that would take our minds off death. I had won the dare, but felt anything but triumphant. What I felt was defeat and grief. Undertaker Thomas Lynch writes about exactly this type of schizophrenia in his memoir, The Undertaking, Life Studies from the Dismal Trade. We are drawn to the dead, and yet abhor them. Grief places them on pedestals and buries them in graves. We love and hate them all at once. For Lynch, funerals and graveyards seek to mend these gaps between our fears and our fond feelings, between the sickness and the sadness it variously awakens in us, between the weeping and dancing, or tree-climbing, we are driven to when someone we love dies. In every corpse I've seen, there's been something… off. The mortician can lacquer and paint position limbs and facial features just so, but he can't make us forget that it's not really our loved one, but an inanimate husk. With Grandpa, it had been his mouth. In life, he had an underbite, and his lower lip always stuck out a bit. In death, his lips had been clamped into a thin line I didn't recognize. When I finally opened the packet of snapshots taken of Grandpa at his funeral, I was surprised by the things I remembered from fifteen years ago, like the strange set of his mouth, but also by the things I had forgotten, like his liver-spotted hands or the color of the flowers on the casket. A few months after Grandpa passed away, my great-uncle Joe died, and though I barely knew him, my parents had made me go to the funeral. On Uncle Joe's corpse, his hands had been distorted. Because he'd loved to fish, Joe was buried holding a fishing reel. Under the recessed lighting of the funeral parlor, He had looked waxy, while the metallic reel was animated by the light sparkling on its shiny surface. His fingers looked boneless. Where Knuckles should have been, the unbroken line of smooth flesh stretched like giant linguine noodles. When Uncle Joe's son drove his father's fishing boat behind the hearse on the way to the cemetery, it had been too much for my mother. That's so stupid. His boat's not going to go with him, she had whispered to me as we stood at the graveside. Her concept of heaven didn't include fishing rods or aluminum boats with outboard motors. Whether it had been Uncle Joe's wife's idea or his grown children's, someone imagined Joe would be fishing in heaven. Diane at the Ord Township Library had agreed to look up the microfilm herself and transcribe the obituary for me. I didn't think this was protocol, but a kindness she had bestowed on me because she knew my mother. The day after we spoke on the phone, I received an email with the obituary. Three brothers in one grave, the headline read. The obituary recounted how their father, Frank, had returned from town, and the boys were untacking his four-horse team. The storm came up, and their mother urged them to come in the house, but they preferred to remain in the barn, telling their mother that they would come in after the storm, the article read. Charlie had just returned home from business college four days before, And I imagined the brothers were catching up, telling stories and joking privately. Had they been in awe of the storm? Had they stopped to ponder the majestic thunderheads, clouds the color of pewter? Why hadn't they listened to their mother? Had she nagged them too much already that day? The obituary goes on. They were standing in the doorway of the barn, watching the rain. The flash came, and Mrs. Krahulik, remembering her sons, looked to the barn and saw a flame. She and her husband then rushed to the barn and found the three lifeless bodies. By a stroke of luck, my great-grandfather, seventeen at the time, was spared. Like me, the obit writer had speculated, Rudolph, an older boy also living at home, was at the time at the home of his sister, Mrs. John Barron Jr. This circumstance no doubt saved him. Had he been home, he would doubtless have been with the other boys. My grandfather, my father, and I were but a lightning strike from existing. Probability played its part. In the U.S. between 1910 and 1919, out of every million people, 4.5 were killed by lightning. Irrespective of circumstances, standing in the doorway of a large building during a thunderstorm, odds of any three people together being struck by lightning in 1914 were just under 1 in 10,000 trillion. The odds of my getting breast cancer are much higher. One out of eight American women, or 12%, will be diagnosed with the disease in their lifetime. Researchers speculate that between 40 to 85% of women with a family history like mine will develop breast cancer. Will a cluster of malignant cells darken the screen of my next mammogram? Will cancer bloom in bright, healthy tissue? I worry too about my mother. Will her cancer come back a third time? Her doctors tell her there's a 10% chance her tumor will reoccur. She's prepared. She's even told me what music she wants at her funeral. But there will be no postmortem photos, no memento mori of any kind. Mom wouldn't want them, nor will I need them. When the time comes, I'll remember her from the hundreds of snapshots collected in scrapbooks and albums. Postmortem photographs are partly a response to scarcity when few other records existed to remember loved ones by, either because portraits and photography were expensive and time-consuming, as in the case of my uncles, or because, like Aidan, the deceased didn't live long enough to be their subject. Post-mortem photographs keep the thought of death near. Montaigne believed the key to living well meant dwelling on death. Let us have nothing on our minds as often as death, he wrote. At every moment, let us picture it in our imaginations, in all its aspects. I used to think that momento mori meant, remember the dead, and assumed that was the purpose of post-mortem photography. But when I recently looked up the phrase, I found its literal translation from the Latin far less congenial. Remember that you will die. Through small but continual reminders of death, We live more fully, and waste less of the precious time we have to spend among the living. The purpose of post-mortem photographs isn't just to remember the dead, but to remind us that, though soon enough we too will die, for the time being, we are still alive. This story is copyright 2013 by Sarah K. Lenz, this recording is copyright 2021 by Rivercliff Books and Media. All rights reserved.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Pendust Radio. For more information or to submit your writing to the podcast, please visit pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com.